starting with chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Well, as you might realise from that reading, Hebrews makes a pretty big point about Jesus being our high priest. And today, yes, it's time we start processing that. But what does it even mean? Uh, What does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? Israel's priesthood began back in the days of Aaron, when, when Israel was rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, At that time, the priest's role and and function and duties centred around what was called a tabernacle. It was like a portable tent structure that they carried with them as they travelled through the wilderness. Later, it it all centred around a temple that was fixed in Jerusalem when they settled in the Promised Land. Uh, And what the tabernacle and, and then temple did was create space. It created space for mediation between God and his people via the priests who could minister in the holy temple and make various offerings to God on behalf of the people. Uh, deep, deep within the temple was an, was an inner place. It was called the most holy place in the temple or the holy of holies where the glory of God dwelled. That most holy place was closed off to all and sundry, even the priests. It was too holy a place for anyone to enter. Only the high priest, only the high priest, and only once a year the high priest could ever enter that innermost part of the temple and only to offer a sacrifice of atonement for his and and the people's sin. Anyone else would just be destroyed by the overwhelming glory of God 
and his holy presence that was there if they entered that inner part of the temple. And, and so too would that high priest be destroyed if he entered on any other day of the year or for any other reason. And so what that tabernacle and, and then temple system taught us, well, there's a few things. First of all, it shows us that God desires to dwell with his people. That's literally what that word tabernacle means, dwelling. God wants to be with us. But secondly, it showed us that, that God is holy, 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 in a way that we are most patently not. And so as much as he wants to dwell with us, our, our unholiness actually prevents that. Our sin necessarily separates us from the holy God. And yet third, the temple taught us that God has made provision for our sins to be forgiven uh, through the sin offerings that the priests could make on our behalf and most especially through the high priest, uh, this mediator whom God appointed to represent us and particularly on that day of atonement once a year, uh, as it was called, when he could uh, in a special way atone for our sin in the very presence of the glory of God. So that's the backdrop to our scripture that we've just read through uh, from the end of Hebrews chapter 4 running into chapter 5. This too here is speaking about that role of that high priest in presenting atonement for our sin. Um, but this scripture now explains that, that that high priestly role has fallen to Jesus. Take a look first at, at chapter 5. Uh, see that it was necessary for for a high priest to be appointed for his role, but by God. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And verse 4, No one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. That's just how it worked. But all of it is now past, at least in terms of Aaron's line of priests, because God has not appointed any more high priests from Aaron's line. The role of the high priest has now been handed over to Jesus. God's now appointed him as our high priest forever. Forever, it says here. And we've had hints of this in the past couple of weeks about Jesus becoming the high priest. Chapter 2 and verse 17, for example, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We thought about that a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. But now in chapter 5 and verse 5, we read that God has appointed Jesus to this role forever. Forever, chapter 5, verse 5. So also, uh, that is, just like Aaron and all the high priests that followed Aaron, uh, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has been appointed our eternal high priest. Verse 6 is very clear. And appointed to that role by God. So this is just how it is now. 
He's more than just another priest in the line of Aaron. And, of course, Jesus wasn't from the line of Aaron, if you know his genealogy. So, so no, it won't do for us just to sort of see Jesus as, you know, the final high priest in the tradition of Aaron. No, there's something else here. He's been appointed as our eternal high priest in the tradition of Melchizedek. Uh, yeah, Melchizedek, again, there in verse 10 at the end of our reading. And you'd be right to wonder, well, who's this? Who's this Melchizedek guy? To disappoint you, we're probably not going to solve your curiosity today about this mysterious Melchizedek. He's going to come up again, though, in Hebrews, so don't worry. We'll get back to him. The point at this part of the letter, I think, is that Melchizedek is mysterious. And notably that he is beyond everything we know. He's beyond anything that any of the people in the story of Scripture can lay any kind of claim to. And that's what the people uh, were always doing, isn't it? Calling on their heritage will we'll end that. Melchizedek sits outside all of their ancestral claims. Melchizedek predates Israel itself. And so he predates their whole priesthood through Aaron. He predates all the sacrifices and rituals and the temple and the tabernacle before that. Melchizedek goes way back. That's the point here, I think, of the scripture, way back to before Israel even was. His only appearance, if you're interested, is on about page 10 of the Bible. Uh, it's back in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, to bring you up to speed, uh, Abraham has just defeated a bunch of kings uh, to rescue his nephew Lot, who'd been carried away. And, and, then, and then this suddenly happens in Genesis 14 verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Aaron and said, uh, Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And then back to the narrative. Three, three verses from Genesis 14, though, and, and you are now up to speed with Melchizedek. His title there in Genesis 14, King of Salem, we could translate in English as King of Peace. His name, Melchizedek, if we translated it, means King of Righteousness. And explicitly we're told there, he is priest to God Most High. That's all we really know about Melchizedek in terms of the biblical narrative. But fast forward about a thousand years from the time of Abraham to, to, the, to the time of King David and, and God promised through David in, in Psalm 110, God promised that the coming Messiah, the long-awaited saviour, would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's out of Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Fast forward about another thousand years after King David's time and Jesus bursts onto the stage of history. And Hebrews here now explains that, 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 that just as God promised through that psalm, the, the Messiah has been appointed as our great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek just as God had promised. And so, so Jesus doesn't just you know, drop into the earthly high priesthood that, that was instituted in, in Old Testament Israel. He takes up a priesthood without end. He fulfills that 
Old Testament Aaronic priesthood, but, but he also replaces it with something eternal and something beyond us. And that marks an important distinction, that the earthly succession of high priests has been broken forever. God doesn't appoint any more high priests in the line of Aaron in the New Testament, and, and, and nor will he. Only Jesus, whom he has appointed as our high priest forever. What Hebrews has been saying uh, each week, and, and what it's saying here again today, what it's going to continue to say to us as we keep reading through it, is that, is that there's no role anymore for the old way of things. The, the Jewish religious system, the whole temple system, all the way up to the high priesthood, has found its fulfilment in Jesus. God's promises, actually, uh, have always been bigger than the temple, bigger than Jerusalem, bigger than Israel. So just like we discovered last week, we were thinking about Jesus in regard to the prophet Moses. We now see this of Jesus in in regard to Moses' brother and co-worker Aaron, the first high priest ordained by God in Israel. They were just both part of the journey for a time, Moses and Aaron, They were pointing us forward, pointing us forward to the real deal in Jesus. We should also notice that the Old Testament priestly system could only atone for sin because it pointed forward like that. It pointed forward to and and trusted in in God somehow atoning for our sin. So so think, for example, of that Day of Atonement ritual each year. Uh, You have to process it. If you were to read it through, it's in Leviticus 16, and and what happened with those sacrifices, you've got to process it. Did did the high priest actually, you know, literally convey the sins of the people onto the head of that goat that was to be sacrificed? Or was that symbolic? If it was symbolic, it's pointing to something beyond it, isn't it? And if that's the case, then it it actually depends on that thing that it's pointing forward to. We're going to discover as we work through Hebrews that the temple sacrifices did not, in and of themselves, atone for sin. They symbolised what God would one day do to atone for our sin. And now God has done that. And so Jesus completes, perfects, and, and does away with the whole temple and sacrificial system. You think it through long enough, and, and of course, there had to be a deeper reckoning of sin going on in God's courts than, than the temple ritual with those animals. The Israelites were saved, therefore, by their faith in what God was demonstrating in that system. But now in Jesus, the substance of what all that was pointing to has been revealed and resolved. God himself had purposed since the creation of the world to make this one-time payment for our sin, to to be the one-time sacrifice for the sin of the world, B.C. and A.D. And and all the routine of Israel's temple system and and the tabernacle system in the wilderness before that and even even the first sketch, I guess, uh, of Abraham and his son Isaac at the altar, if you know that story, all those things were really just conceptual models of, of, of how God was going to atone for the sin of the world once 
for all time. Jesus now has therefore become our great high priest forever. Lock that in. Jesus has now become our great high priest forever. And that truth has has massive implications for the conceptual models that went before it. The high priesthood of Aaron has run its course. So too the temple in which those priests served has run its course. There is no most holy place in a temple somewhere. There is no way to carry out the routines of that day of atonement anymore. And nor is any of it needed. All the sacrifices symbolising God's promised atonement have now been fulfilled by the true, the, the perfect sacrifice. The conceptual models of that, they're gone forever. They're gone. But, but we have more than all of that today. All the truth of God's word revealed to us about this. Jesus' sacrifice brought the actual atonement of sin that the world had been needing and still does. And, and need we say that his blood in that sacrifice, it's of infinite value, isn't it? As our eternal high priest, his perfect sacrifice has forever secured our atonement. And so as Jesus kind of does away with that whole system, the temple and the high priest and the sacrifices, he he brings us right into the presence of God. That was the point of it all. That's what it was all leading to. It's not just, it doesn't bring us into the, into the most holy part of a building even, where, where the glory of God dwelt. No, into the very presence of God, seated on his throne. And so God can do just as he always planned to do and dwell with us. God's presence is now open wide for all who come to him through this great high priest, Jesus. Verse 16, let us then. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That verse right there, chapter 4 and verse 16 of Hebrews, that is the literal temple and and the whole system around it finished permanently. Jesus takes us into the very throne. This is a whole new dynamic to the relationship between God and his people. This is a whole new relationship, actually, that has now opened up between God and his people who trust in Jesus. So easy to read these words. Verse 16 is talking about the throne of the almighty God. So reverence beyond comprehension is is fitting and appropriate. It should be completely overwhelming to us. It should be devastating to us to be that close. But by relying on our great high priest, we can approach God freely, directly, and with confidence that we will receive mercy. That is therefore the end of of the old priesthood right there in Hebrews 4.16. The curtain that separated that most holy place in the, in the innermost part of the temple, keeping everyone out, that curtain was torn in two when Jesus died because now God can dwell 
with us because our sin has been atoned. So the scriptures say that by the Holy Spirit, God does. God dwells in our hearts when we come to faith in Jesus. One day, of course, we will experience this truth in, in, in a far more glorious way, of course. And scriptures like Revelation 7 give us that kind of picture. Revelation 7, in uh, verse 14, the elder said to John, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Their sin has been atoned. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Oh, glory, glory still to come. But what does it mean for us right now, what we're reading here in Hebrews? What does it mean in the here and now of this life that we can approach the throne of grace with an expectation of mercy? Well, firstly, and it may not need saying, but better safe than sorry, for us and our salvation, there's absolutely no functional need for the literal temple building, nor the earthly priesthood that served in it, nor even for the offering of sacrifices for our sin. So if we think that through, we might just be a little bit wary as we go through this life, of, of, of the false sense of security sometimes, or, or, or the appeal even that, that things like ornate church buildings can kind of have on us, uh, or robes and garments perhaps, or any sense of someone making some new sacrifice for our sin. Hebrews is going to challenge us very deeply on these things. In places like this, the Bible could not be any clearer on this matter, that the priesthood, the temple, and, and anything we might want to offer up to God for our sin has now become obsolete because all of that way of thinking is, is, was just merely pointing forward to what God has now done for us, what he has fulfilled for us in Jesus. In fact, if we do fall back into that old way of thinking of things, we we actually only detract from, deny, reject what God has now done in Christ to atone for our sin. He is our high priest forever because of what he has done. And so secondly, on the flip side of that, that this gives us complete, total assurance, assurance of our salvation Jesus is not going to not mediate for us. He has been appointed by God the Father to do that forever. As our great high priest, Jesus has become the source of our eternal salvation, says verse 9, if only we trust and obey him. So there's no more to come. There's no stage two of, of, of how to be saved or step two. No, the whole kit and caboodle of our salvation is this. Christ was crucified to atone for our sin. So we ought to take some good uh, clarity checks from these kinds of scriptures, I think. And, and today, I, th I think maybe as to why Christians uh, give to the church, say, in tithes and offerings clarity check on this sort of stuff. Under the old system, people brought offerings to the priest for those rituals that symbolised the atonement of sin. But God has now atoned for our sin once for all time in Jesus. 
Christian offerings then are responsive, responsive to that truth. They're more actually like Abraham's tithe in, 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 in Genesis 14 when he tithed to Melchizedek in those verses I read. After God had already blessed Abraham, he offered a tenth of everything. So here's the kind of modern-day church clarity, I guess. Don't bring offerings thinking that it might somehow help atone for your sin. Give in thanks to God and give him your whole life because he has already made atonement for your sin forever such that you can be in his presence now and enjoy him as your God forever. And in a similar way, I think, there's a lot of people out there in the world who, who are going to try to sign you up for some kind of plus deal. Some kind of plus. They're going to want to try to tack something onto that gospel. They want you to hope in a gospel plus something. And that plus something can take any shape or form, anything that they could dream up or imagine or, or sell you on. And here's the thing to be wary of. It could look and seem very, very religious. Some old ritual, maybe. Some new ritual, perhaps. Something that they'll say you still need to do to atone for your sin so that you can experience relationship with God. But do not listen to those voices. Read these scriptures don't listen to those voices that just cast doubt on what God has said, what God has done for you and your salvation. And when in your quiet moments fears arise or, or, or when social or even religious systems put doubts into your minds, take comfort in the truth of the gospel written out for you so clearly in the word of God. Jesus brings us into God's presence by his priestly work and by his perfect sacrifice. All we need to do for our salvation is hold fast to our confession in him, chapter 4 and verse 14, hold fast to the cross of Christ to the very end. A third thing that then bubbles out of all of this is, is that we can meet God directly now in prayer. He is our God. He is with us. We can meet him in prayer. In fact, surely we should meet God in prayer. That's a key part of what this letter calls us to here. It's rich with assurance. Probably my favourite thing about Hebrews is how rich this is with the assurance we have in Christ. But, but on top of that, it then invites us into this prayer, this relational prayer with God that we can enjoy here and now. Invites us into direct prayer with God, not mediated through a human priest somewhere or, or through any human for that matter. No. Our troubles, our griefs, our sorrows, our praise, our worship, our joy, our, our doubts, our fears, our, our confessions, our, our thanks, our anxieties, whatever we're going through, we can speak it directly to God. To God through our great high priest, Jesus. 
and purely on the basis of what he has done. This is, a, this is truly a great privilege of being a Christian, isn't it? We may approach God directly with freedom and, and with confidence, verse 16, that because of Jesus we will receive mercy and grace to help us. Verse 16 again, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In light of what the old tabernacle and temple system taught us, you know, that, that God is holy, 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 and we cannot therefore be in his presence because of our sin, the fact that we can now approach God like this now because our sin is atoned for us, it's just insane, isn't it? This is epic. How often, though, do, do we embrace such a wonderful privilege? Be encouraged, I'd say, by this passage to meet God in prayer all the time and with, with whatever it is that's on your heart and mind. After all, that, that's what he did this for. He did all this to that end, to bring us into a living relationship with him, that we would be in his presence and in a living relationship with him forever. Jesus even demonstrated for us that kind of prayerful relationship with God during his time on earth here, praying to the Father, wasn't he, all the time, even pointing out on occasion that he's praying like that for the benefit of those who are listening. He even taught us how to pray, not with endless chatter or, or, or fancy uh, flair, but, but from a place of, of real, a place of real relationship with God and just simple honesty as his people, even when we can't find the words we see here in these scriptures, just loud cries and tears, as he himself demonstrated, chapter 5 and verse 7, even just that will be received as reverent prayer by this very personal and intimate and loving God. This is not telling us about a God that's distant and uncaring somewhere, harsh and unapproachable. <laughs> This is telling us about a God who can sympathise with us because he put on human skin and came and experienced the trials that we experience, chapter 4, verse 15. He himself came to learn obedience, chapter 5 and verse 8, and so he knows what we're going through as we try to learn obedience to him. So this is a God who truly can relate with us and who we can speak to. We can just speak to this God straight up with everything that's on our heart. So maybe we should. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture and we pray that you would work these things in us for your purposes, Lord. And we pray to you on the back of this scripture, we pray knowing that you have paid an infinite price for us, that the blood of your precious Son was paid to bring us into your presence forever. And we pray to you on the back of this scripture, knowing that our biggest need, therefore, our, our eternal need, has already been met in Jesus. We know that our sins are forgiven in his blood, uh, not by temples or priests or, or any other sacrifices or any other things we could do or any other systems we could think up, but no, Christ was crucified for us. And so we thank you for your grace to us in him. And Father, we ask, therefore, for your continued mercy and grace to us as we try to map out this Christian life. And as we do that, we pray that with scriptures like this, you would fill us all the more with assurance over our salvation and that you would draw us deeper and deeper into relationship with you. 
real relationship. Help us uh, to be real in our prayer life with you. That's when we talk to you, Father. Help us to help us to talk to you more. Teach us to really pray. To come right up to your throne and to, to spill out what's on our hearts, whatever's going on in our life. Lord, help us to pray to you and know that you love us and have us in your hand forever. Father, we thank you for understanding us, for being the kind of God who understands us and is so gentle to us in Jesus, our high priest. We pray, therefore, you would teach us to obey him because we see that little word that just keeps popping up here in Hebrews. It's there again today. Have us obey Jesus and fix our eyes fully on him. Amen.